Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is episode 53 of the Jesus Society Podcast, so this is the first episode of year number two. Yay! Um, we have, uh, we've hit a milestone, so we're happy about that. Um, today, I want to, I want us to think a little bit more about the Exodus and what, uh, which we started last week, um, and what God revealed to his people Israel about himself and his nature immediately following their departure from Egypt. But, but I want to go beyond that too, um, because I want to, I want us to see how what we're going to talk about today carries through the rest of Israel's history into the New Testament, uh, Jesus and the the church, God's people uh, today, okay? So um, first of all, we have to remember when when Israel arrived in Egypt, and and this is this is hard sometimes for us to grasp, but but I think it's important to, Kind of try to put yourselves in in their shoes a little bit and understand where they were as a people. When they arrived in Egypt, they were they were a small ragtag group of refugees. Okay, they they knew that in some way they'd been chosen by God, um, who had made them some pretty explicit promises um, to bless them, to give them a land. Uh, to make them into into a great nation more than the stars in the sky, um, they would have been told. Uh, a nation who would someday, in some way, bless all the nations of the earth. So they had a they had kind of a fledgling identity as a family, but that's all they were at this point was is a family. Um, they were Jacob's children, and, and you know so there was. You know, I don't. I don't remember how many, but it was very few. It was. It was a family, and they had this kind of fledgling identity as a family, and they had a bit of hope um, that that things were going to get better for them. That God had plans for them into the distant future, but that's about all they had. Well, fast forward about four hundred years. And all those hopes, I imagine, seemed about as far away as all those stars that God had mentioned to them. They were now a, a huge group of people. The, the New Testament um, Jews seemed to believe they would use the word that they, they, would, they would say that they flourished there in Egypt. Um, flourished in the sense that they had grown tremendously. Um, the book of Exodus tells us that they had grown to the point that Pharaoh started to be a little bit concerned about how the land of Egypt was going to have more Israelites than Egyptians, right? So they were a huge people group, but they were a terribly oppressed people group. They were, they were slaves. They had become slaves to this um, paranoid, foreign, pagan power this nation among whom they lived. This God who had made all those promises to their ancestors just didn't seem like he had been around much lately. And so they were struggling. 
I, I'm, I'm sure they were questioning God's purposes. I'm sure they were questioning his, his promises because, boy, none of that, none of their current situation seemed to indicate anything about them being a special, chosen, beloved people of the Creator God. But God was about to show up big time. Uh, the Bible assures us that God heard their cries uh, in Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, and he stepped into their world on a dramatic rescue mission to deliver his people and to lead them into, into this good land and finally start to fulfill some of those promises. But who was this God, really? I mean, Israel if you think about what Israel knew about their God, it was, you know, it was a small clipboard of, of information, relatively speaking. There was a lot about the God that they served and whose name they bore that they didn't really understand. And Israel was about to find out who their God was. And Israel learned who their God was largely through the events surrounding their exodus from Egypt. And, and that story then became such a part of their identity, that story of God's miraculous, dramatic rescue of his people from Egypt. That became such a part of their identity that what, whatever happened afterward throughout their whole the whole rest of their history, the family, family of Abraham looked back then to that story of the Exodus to rediscover again who their God was and to pray that he would do for them again um, rescue and deliver and heal and bless all those things that constituted them as, the, as his people in the first place. And we talked about some of those events last week. Mostly we talked about the Passover Today, I want to look at um, a part of Israel's history after that first Passover, after they left Egypt, when, when God, not Pharaoh, became their king. So there in the wilderness, north and east of Egypt, God revealed himself to his people by, by means of, of three big, important symbols Okay, um, the tabernacle, the Torah, and to, to maybe a slightly lesser extent, maybe not, God's empowering spirit. Okay, those are, those are three big, hefty concepts in the Old Testament. Okay, and we don't have time to talk about all of them today. Um, I talked a bit about um, the Torah, the law. Uh, last year when we did our um, Story of the Bible series, so I, I will put a link to that um, in, the, in the show notes for today. Um, but what I, what I really want to focus on today is the, the tabernacle, the, the idea of the tabernacle, what it meant to Israel, what it symbolized. And, um, and in doing that, we're going to talk about its later manifestation as the temple, okay? But, but, but before, I, before we jump in right into that, I, I just want to say, because I used the word symbols uh, a minute ago, um, that God revealed himself to his people through these three big symbols. 
But what I want to say is that these weren't just symbols, okay? Sometimes symbols, um, you know, we think that they're, they're just things that place carriers for a meaning beyond themselves, okay? What, what I want to say is they weren't just symbols. They were, they were more robust than that. But they were symbols in the sense that they ended up for Israel conveying much more meaning than just the things themselves, Okay, so so let's talk about this this tabernacle or or the temple. We're going to wrap those things up together. Okay, uh, when when we in in modern twenty first century Western civilization, when we think about tabernacles or temples uh, today, we tend, I think, particularly if you're evangelicals. Now, if you're a if you're a um, if you're maybe an Anglican or a or a Catholic or an Episcopalian, you might have some more nuanced understanding of these things than just this. But if you're an evangelical Protestant of any stripe, um, I, I think most of us just tend to think of, of temples as essentially nothing more than a, a building where people meet to, to hold religious ceremonies or, or sacrifices take place or things like that. But as we're going to see... The tabernacle and and later the temple is much 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 more than that. Um, as we talked about briefly last week, when the when the Israelites finished the construction of the of their tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus four verses thirty uh, sorry Exodus forty verses thirty four and thirty five, the presence and glory of God Himself would descend on and completely fill that tabernacle. Um, later rabbis would call that the Shekinah of God, okay? His, his presence and glory that, that, that filled the tabernacle, okay? Um, and, and we talked a little bit about that at the end of, of last week's episode, how that happened again during Solomon's temple. We're going to mention that again today. Um, and some things about how the presence of God did not descend on, on the new temple that, that they built after Babylonian um, captivity, okay? We're not going to rehash that. You can go back and listen to last week's episode to, to, to hear more about that. But in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, God's presence himself descended on and completely filled that tabernacle. Also, Israel was instructed to set up their camp around the tabernacle there in the wilderness by tribes so that the, the way this functioned is that the tabernacle and thus the presence of God was in the very midst of his people. And, and don't miss the point here, okay? This is huge. This isn't just a tent. This is the place where God dwelt among his people. And the, and, and the thing about this that we've got to understand God has always intended to live among his people. Always. We, see, we saw that in the garden. In the, in, the, in the earliest moments of creation, God was dwelling there in the garden with his people. Okay? Walking in the garden in the cool of the evening breeze, it said. Adam and Eve communed with God there in the garden. He was there with them, with his people. 
So this this idea that we've developed in in modern religion of this 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 distant God who lives somewhere else away from his people who is not really concerned or involved with his people. That is just not the biblical picture of God at all. And so if you've if you've kind of got a picture of God as distant and remote and um, unreachable or unconcerned with with you and your life, you need to you need to wrestle a little bit with the fact that that's not the way God is pictured in Scripture. Okay? That is not the God of Scripture. That's important. Okay? So the tabernacle in the wilderness and then ultimately the temple in Jerusalem were the, they, were, they were the place where God would dwell in the midst of his people, just as he had done in the garden. Okay? So the tabernacle, the tabernacle and temple was designed to function as kind of a miniature heaven and earth, um, a, a, little, a little world, a little Eden in which God and his people would meet. And in the Bible, the, the tabernacle and temple always function that way. It's, it's the place where heaven and earth intersect. Okay? This is important. This is really, really important. It's not just a building. It is the place where heaven and earth intersect. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a piece of furniture in the temple, the tabernacle, that's kind of important for us to think about a little bit, um, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know, it was a, it was a, a box. It was made of acacia wood, um, if I remember correctly. Um, and it contained, among other things, the, the tablets of the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai that, that constituted the covenant uh, between God and Israel. And there were a few other things that, that were kept um, a, um, Aaron's rod that, that budded, um, a jar of manna. Um, there, so there were a few things. Hang on a second. Gotta, gotta get some coffee. Okay. So in the same way that, you know, uh, you might have a, you might have a, a safe deposit box or a, or a fireproof safe in your house where you kind of keep things like the deed to your house and your insurance documents and some other vital documents or things that are central to your life, okay? God's people kept in the ark the things that spoke of and symbolized the union of God and Israel and the, and the purposes that God had for Israel and how God had rescued and provided for and guided his people, Israel, okay? So, but but it was more than that, more than just a, a kind of a, a covenantal safe deposit box. The ark was, was above all that, the place of meeting, okay? Um, according to Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22, the, the lid uh, of the ark, which was called the mercy seat with its carved angels at, at either end, wings spread forward toward each other. And you can see, you can look that up and see pictures of representations of that. That was where God would meet with his people, okay? Usually in terms of a representative, Moses initially. And God's intention to meet in that way with his people provided the context for the whole 
sacrificial system of Israel. This was the place where the people of God met God for worship, for purification, for guidance sometimes, for forgiveness of sin. Okay? So so understand that. This was the place where God dwelt among his people and where God's people would meet their God. Okay? Now, moving forward in the Old Testament, when David became king of Israel, God intended to build a permanent house for God in his new capital, Jerusalem. And in in a very brief but very significant conversation in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan um, responding to David's proposal to build God a, a house says, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14, okay? David says, I want to build a house for God. Nathan goes home and thinks about this and prays about it, and God appears to Nathan and says, go, go, to, to, go talk to David. And Nathan comes back before David and he, and he says, this is what God says. So David wants to build a house. Nathan says to David, the Lord is going to make a house for you, David. Okay? David wants to build a house for God. God says, no, I'm going to make a house for you. Because God says he doesn't need a house. Okay? His, well, hold on a little bit. Nathan goes on to say to David... 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14, says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your seed for you, after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Okay, now, it's easy if you know that story to just sort of brush over that comment and think, okay, Nathan's talking about Solomon, David's immediate son, right? The fascinating thing here in this whole little little brief conversation is that God makes kind of a, a pun on the word house, all right? David asks permission to construct a building, but God promises him a family. Right? You see that? David wants to build a house, and David means a building. But God says, no, I'm going to make a house for you. And here's what that means. After you die, I'm going to raise up your seed, your descendant after you, going to come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, there's a double meaning going on here. Because David's son Solomon will, in fact, construct a temple in Jerusalem. But there's no way you can look at at Solomon and his kingdom and think that that is exactly what God meant here. For, for one reason in specific, the, Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. All right? God is promising David a family. And David's ultimate son 
is is going to have to be in in some sort of tantalizingly special yet unspecific sense God's own son. Now, later generations of Jews would would grapple with that statement and try to understand what God could possibly have meant. But like so many other things in the Old Testament, it was not going to become clear until it was fulfilled in Jesus. We, we always read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, okay? And as early Christians read that story in light of Jesus' resurrection, they saw in that phrase, I will raise up your seed, they saw in that phrase a meaning that no one had, never, had ever before imagined. The building that Solomon would construct was only a, a signpost to the ultimate divine answer to David's request. So if there was going to be if there was going to be a place where the living God would dwell forever among his people, it was not going to be a building of brick and mortar. That that place where God would forever dwell among his people was going to have to be in and as a human being. The ultimate son of David so somehow, everything that we might think and celebrate about the temple and about God's intention of, of dwelling among his people is going to be given a whole new range of meaning when David's promised house turned out to be a human being, a human being who would say that he himself was the new temple of God, the new place where heaven and earth would meet, the new place where God's people would come to receive forgiveness of sins. So again, God is insistent on dwelling among his people if, of course, his people will have him. And God has always had as his ambition to live among his people. And understand, this is not the same thing as God bringing his people to live with him, all right? This is important. We're not talking about going to heaven to live with God after we die. That's not what we're talking about. God didn't create humans when we, you know, I mean, think about this. When God decided to create humans, he didn't just create them there in heaven where God already was. Right? God created a place, earth, where he placed human beings. He created a paradise and he placed humanity within that paradise and then God himself came to live among them. Now, when Solomon does build that temple in Jerusalem, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, the, the same thing happens all over again. God's presence filled that building as well. And, and by the way, the glorious presence of God filling the tabernacle and the temple both look forward in Jewish thought and in Scripture to the day when God's presence and glory will fill the whole earth. Okay, so so again, this is a this look looks forward to something bigger. Okay, um, God's ultimate intention is is to renew and restore creation itself, flooding the whole world with his presence. And you can see that in a, in a whole bunch of passages throughout the Old Testament. But um, 
a couple that are that are real clear. Numbers 14.21 says, As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Psalm 72, verse 19 says, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. So, so the, the Old Testament understands that, that ultimately it's God's desire not to just fill this little building or this tent with his presence and live there in a, in a small way among his people. His intent ultimately is to fill the whole earth with his presence. The whole earth is his. And he intends to fill it, okay, with his presence eventually. But the bottom, the bottom line in all this is that the temple was the place where heaven and earth would intersect, where, where God's people would meet with their God, okay? And, and that understanding, grappling with that, helps us see some things in the New Testament that we might not have appreciated as fully as we should. Hang on, more coffee. For instance, that is why, so, so the, the story of, of Jesus uh, overturning the, the tables of the money changers in the temple, um, Matthew 21, uh, Mark 11, John 2, you can read that in, in all three of those places. If, if you understand what the temple's supposed to be, the tabernacle temple is supposed to be, the place where God dwells among his people, the place where, where heaven and earth intersect, the place where God's people meet their God. If you understand it that way, you can see why Jesus gets so upset. In, in Mark's account of that story, Jesus quotes uh, Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, when he refers to God's house as a house of prayer, and he reminds them that that house of prayer is not just for Jews, but for all nations, okay? Again, God's activity on earth is ultimately about the whole world, not just about Israel. Israel is supposed to be his, his beachhead in a world gone mad, right? To, 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 to reflect the, the glory and presence and blessings and love and mercy of God to the wider world, okay? And his temple is a place not just for Israel, but it was a place where Gentiles were supposed to be able to come to, right? To, to meet Israel's God. And the Jews in Jesus' day, had, had, um, they had totally corrupted that place where heaven and earth intersected, where God dwelt and where he would meet with his people, and in John's account, just a, just a few verses later, John 2, 16 through 21, okay, Jesus um, gets really, really upset when, um, when they had corrupted this. He overturns the table of the money changers. And just a few verses later, in John's version of this story, Jesus will say that he himself is going to be the temple going forward. So, so get what he's saying. I'm... You, you guys have corrupted the place of God's presence on earth. You've, you've corrupted what, what, what the temple was always supposed to be. You've turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers, a place of commerce, instead of the place where heaven and earth meet. So from here on out, I'm going to function as the temple. 
And, and this goes back to what God told Solomon, right? That I, or sorry, what God told David, I will raise up your seed from among you and, and I will be a father to him and he will be my son. So there's, there's another important piece of all this that we have to grapple with, okay? Because later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' followers, Christians, you and me, we are actually said to be the temple. Okay? Wrap your mind around that. With all that we understand about the temple, what does it mean for you and I now to be the temple of God? So 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. So there's a couple of places where that the New Testament makes that clear. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And in Revelation chapter 1, when, when John sees seven lampstands, which is an obvious temple image, with Jesus right in the midst of them, those lampstands are said to be the churches. Later on in Revelation 21, verse 3, in the, in the scene of the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem in the midst of it, John hears a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and with their God. And a few verses later, verse 22, because of this new reality, John says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So, so let me string this together and help you see this. In this current time in which we're living, we are the, we are the place where God dwells. God's Spirit lives within us. We're the place, we are the place where heaven and earth intersect. You get that? You are, you are a carrier. That's why, that's why Paul will say we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are carriers of the divine before the world. The, 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 the lost world can meet God when they meet us. Okay? God in us. Ultimately, when God renews all things, when, he, when, he, when we have the new heaven and the new earth, okay, we're not going to need a temple anymore because God himself and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. Okay? 
in the, in the restored new creation, God himself will live fully among his people, just as he walked in the garden at the time of the evening breeze with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The point of all this is that God is persistent in his desire to live among his people in love and peace and joy and to reflect that light to the wider world. That was his plan in the garden and he has never given up on it. Human rebellion and sin have complicated that project, but rather than scrapping it, God found a way to fulfill his original intent through Israel with their tabernacle and temple functioning as his dwelling place among his people, a, 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 a mini Eden of sorts. And ultimately, he fulfilled that intent through his son Jesus, who became God's living temple on earth, the place where we meet God. And remarkably, unbelievably, um, just stunningly, God has allowed us to share in that role as his collective redeemed people who actually become the temple of the living God for the purposes of reflecting God's goodness and love to the wider world. We're, we're not God, okay? I want to be clear about that. But God lives in us. And his, his intent is that the people of the nations meet him in us. Paul will talk about Christ in us, and he'll, and he'll call that the hope of glory. We have, a, we have a purpose in this world, folks. When you walk in among the, the people of this world, when you, when you go to work, when you, when you interact with your family, when you, when you meet people everywhere you go, when you live and function in this world in whatever state you live and function in this world, if you're a plumber or a, or a computer engineer or whatever, you carry the divine presence with you. You, you become a temple in the wider world. That's precious, and it's humbling, and it's beautiful. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we would appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate and review us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you go. Um, please visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Um, as as we, I keep saying this, we're, we're loading the podcast episodes onto YouTube and Odyssey, so you can find us there. Um, we've also created a Patreon page. Um, if you if you feel the the desire to support us in the work that we do in any in any way, we're we're grateful um, for if you do that. Thank you so much for listening. As we get into our second year, we're so grateful for you. And remember, you are greatly loved.